following program contains language and subject matter that you may consider unsuitable for children. Parental discretion is advised. Greetings, Earthling. Uh, His Highness the Jackal. The Jackal. I'm going to pass the reins to Mr. Jackal, the new king of Virginia. I think Jackal's a Latino. I'm not sure, but he'll give it to you, Jeff. The Jackal. Welcome one, welcome all to another exciting episode inside the Jackal's Head right here live on PSN Radio. It's September 27th, 2020, and the days are creeping closer and closer to Election Day. The days are also creeping closer and closer to maybe, just maybe, we'll get some answers as to what the hell is going on with the president... With William Barr, with the investigation, some things have been coming out, some good, some bad. We're going to get into some of that in a little bit. I want to thank you all for sitting uh, by the uh, bedside, by your table, by your desk, listening in from wherever you might be, east of the Rockies or west of the Rockies, as my once mentor Art Bell would say, rest in peace. Whether you're listening on another galaxy or right here, in the spiral galaxy known as the Milky Way. Thank you for joining me. Tonight I have also a fantastic guest coming on the second hour. The one and the only, our good friend Terry Wickham is going to be with us in a returning form to talk about what he's working on right now and to clue us all in to the latest happenings in his world. Terry, as you guys know, is... uh, Well, he... He's been uh, making uh, films for a little bit now, for quite a long time, actually. He's been one of my favorite guests uh, to have on the show here. And uh, we've had him on several times over the years. And every time he's working on something really good, he lets us know. We, we bring him on. He started out in filmmaking and uh, in, by taking TV production in high school. So this has been a passion of his for a very long time. And uh, he's uh, a heck of a filmmaker. Good friend of the shows. Very talented uh, filmmaker, like I said. And he's going to be with us within the hour. And um, we have a lot to catch up with, uh, Terry. Hopefully he's doing well. I know everybody is uh, kind of like concerned because of the record numbers of COVID death announced. And hot off the presses. This is, uh, right now they're saying it's been over uh, over 200 confirmed deaths of COVID-19. And one thing they're leading or leafing off from these uh, reports is that on a yearly basis about 100 to 150 people 100 to 150,000 people die of the flu or other similar you know viruses. So, while this virus obviously is uh, taking its toll on the entire world, it's right on par with, you know, maybe a little bit higher than normal numbers. And I think a lot of that has to do with uh, some of the media manipulation that's been going on. And I think that has a lot to do with it. Uh, Myself, I think that there's a lot more to the uh, story of COVID-19 that we're being led to. And not just because it came from a Wuhan lab in China, but because of other things. And I'm going to get to a couple of clips I have here ready to go in a few seconds. One which I, I'm going to lead off with because it's a very important uh, clip. It really, it's 
from the 1950s, and it was actually played earlier on the network here by uh, another great show we, we have on, on PSN Radio. And uh, it's one of the rare times that I'll actually, you know, dip in and kind of like steal the clip from another show. Uh, but I, I was hearing it earlier this uh, the last couple of days, and it's a very important clip. When, when you really want to know, folks, what's going on in the streets, what's happening in, in this country, sometimes it's good to sit back and take a little bit of a history lesson. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes it's good to sit back and just listen to our elders a little bit. The clip is from the 50s, is uh, talking about communism and how socialism leads to communism. And I've said it uh, on this show repeatedly, that both roads lead to the same thing, global enslavement. And they both lead to Marxism, fascism, and uh, nothing good. Okay, for all of you out there who are young and impressionable and might think, well, socialist programs are great. Look how, you know, you know, we have all these programs that are socialist in nature and they work fantastic. Let me explain the difference to you. A socialist program in a capitalist society can work just fine. A single program. When it has checks and balances, rules and regulations, people overseeing it, and it's not in a socialist society. This is a republic, folks. This is not a democracy. This is not a socialist system. This is a republic, and it has a right on the anthem, a republic for which we stand, one nation under God, right? This other uh, pledge, I'm sorry, the Pledge of Allegiance. A republic, a republic for which we stand. Now, when you put that into context, and you hear people say, well, this is a democracy. No, it's a republic. People don't understand where they're even at. And I'm not just talking about Joe Biden, who is completely lost in translation like Bill Murray. I'm talking about your general folks out there have no idea what they're doing, what they're saying, what they're even writing about. For the most part, I I think this is probably one of the most clueless-filled bunch of amateurs rioting and looting. They have no clue, other than that most of them are being paid. They're really just blind being led by blind being led by the real powers they are controlling the scenes from behind the scenes and it's a sad situation friends now the first clip I'm going to get to again it's about communism this is from the 1950s why is this important Uh, it's important because of the simple fact that it's very telling to the actions that are taking place right now Today in 2020, it's amazing how all these years later, this is still something we're facing, and and, and it's not going away. They've already laid the foundation for it to get worse and worse and worse. So while we think, well, after the election, everything will start calming down. No, folks. 
If the left wins, there's no coming down. They've already laid the cards on the table. They're coming for everything. Don't think just uh, because you might uh, vote and get the orange men out of office. Or they might rig the election to get them out of office. That it's going to suddenly go back to normal. They have expedited their mission. Their mission is to overtake, overthrow, destroy this country. They've been plotting this for years. By God, we've been warned for decades now. From the likes of Rush Limbaugh, William Cooper, heck, even Glenn Beck, Alex Jones, Ben Shapiro, who I interviewed a, a few years ago, and before he was really, really well, before he blew up, let's just say. But we've been told over and over, this is coming, gotta be careful. Now it's here. And unless we re-elect the president, who seems to really be the only one willing to not back down from these people, we're in a whole heap of trouble. Because they have laid the cards on the table. They are ready to overtake the government. This is a complete coup. This is what happened in Venezuela. This is what happened in Cuba. And it's scary time, folks. If you have money in the bank, I suggest you take it out and hide it. Like your life depends on it. If you have investments, make sure you invest in in things like gold. Because we are living in scary times. Now, I want to play this uh, this clip, and I really want you guys to uh, play, to really pay close attention. Pay as, you know, closely as you possibly can to this. The communists declared that the racial differences among our people constituted the weakest and most vulnerable point in our social fabric. By constantly probing and straining at this one spot, they calculated that eventually the cloth could be torn apart and that Americans could be divided, weakened, and perhaps even set against each other in open combat. We mustn't kid ourselves into thinking that the communists have placed their agitators only into the black communities. They're working both sides of the street. They want hatred, violence, and bloodshed between the races, and they don't care how they get it or whom they use, even children if necessary. Here is a book that I think ought to be in every home library. It's entitled, Color, Communism, and Common Sense by Manning Johnson. He joined the party as a young man because he honestly believed that the communists were trying to improve the conditions of his people. He was a dedicated communist and eventually he rose to one of the highest ranks. But after many years he discovered that instead they were merely planning to use his people in a bloody revolution to destroy America. And when he woke up to this he dropped out of the party and devoted the rest of his life trying to alert his fellow citizens of all races to the true nature of the Communist Party as he knew it to be from the inside. Manning Johnson said, Black rebellion was what Moscow wanted. Bloody racial conflict would split America. During the confusion, demoralization and panic would set in. Then finally the Reds say, Workers stop work. Many of them seize arms by attacking arsenals. Street fights become frequent. Under the leadership of the Communist Party, 
the workers organized revolutionary committees to be in command of the uprising. Armed workers seized the principal government offices, invade the residences of the president and his cabinet members, arrest them, declare the old regime abolished, establish their own power. Now, here is a piece of vicious communist propaganda that perhaps some of you have seen. It's called The Crusader. It's written by Robert F. Williams, one of the organizers of the Revolutionary Action Movement. In this issue of The Crusader, the communists call not only for extensive chaos within the cities, but for putting to the torch every village, every forest, every field, and every barn. The plan is for raging fires from one city to the next. The reason? Well, first there's the value of sheer destruction. Secondly, it would force us to deploy our defenses and rescue units over the widest possible area. The communists point out that as long as our police and National Guard remain concentrated, they're invincible. But if they can be forced to spread out, over the entire city and into the countryside as well. Then they can be picked off from ambush one by one. And the third value of massive fire to the communists is psychological. The average American, they say, soft and decadent, when he sees billows of black smoke rising from one horizon to the other, when at night the only light he has to see by is the flickering red from flames leaping into the sky, he'll become paralyzed with fear and panic you run away and hide and do nothing to interfere with the guerrilla bands as they strike at the community's power centers. The Crusader explains how to set up sniper units in crowded metropolitan areas, how to manufacture jumbo Molotov cocktails, the gallon jug size, and how to mix the gasoline with certain ingredients to make it burn like napalm, how to pour gasoline into utility manholes in the streets to set fire to the main telephone cables, how to put sulfur tips from matches into air conditioning units and blow up large buildings. How to ignite gas mains and oil storage tanks. It explains how radio-controlled model airplanes can be used to fly explosive charges over heavily guarded fences into gasoline storage areas or munition stockpiles. It even calls for infiltration into the National Guard units. Revolutionaries posing as non-militants for the purpose of getting free military training and for gaining access to critical military supplies and heavy weapons. And then, finally, Robert Williams says this. Any all-out minority revolution must create a state of crisis wherein almost all of the male population would be forced to remain in their homes to protect their property and families. The middle class is very large but it is not accustomed to deprivation and terror. Because of its affluence, it has waxed soft. It has no stomach for massive fire, blood, and violence. The motive force behind its life drive is its endless pursuit of prestige, conspicuous consumption, and sensual pleasure. A few years of violent, sporadic, and highly destructive uprisings will set the stage for the grand finale. After the stage is properly set, through protracted struggle, America could be brought to her knees in 90 days of highly organized, fierce fighting, sabotage, and massive firestorm. Ladies and gentlemen, the plans and preparations for a communist revolution of force and violence are far advanced. The organization behind these preparations has almost unlimited financial resources, and it provides both training and leadership 
based upon years of experience in many other countries. Our enemies are deadly serious about their task. And it's nothing short of national suicide for us to continue to ignore their plans and their progress. The violent revolution becomes of primary value to the communists to the extent to which it can be used to condition the masses psychologically to accept the non-violent revolution, which is offered supposedly as the only alternative. Hoping to avoid further violence and bloodshed, the public is to be pressured into accepting measures that will move the country gradually and legally toward communism, but without calling it that. The strategy of the proletarian revolution calls for the quiet conversion of our government into a communist regime, but under the banner of socialism. Well, what is socialism? All right, let's define it. According to the dictionary, socialism is a political concept based upon the principle of government ownership and control of property, the means of production, and the avenues of commerce. Under socialism, those who run the government, and the communists are confident that in America they eventually will be the ones who do so, those who run the government will know who is to get something and who has to wait, and that represents control over human beings. What has all this to do with the communist revolution in America? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it has everything to do with it because the building of socialism is the communist revolution in America. It represents the process whereby our country can be moved gradually toward communism without the people even being aware of it. No matter what grievance we may have, real or imagined, no matter what national problems we may face, the communists seize upon these as excuses to build socialism. They have one and only one solution for all problems. More government, more government, and then more and more until it's total government. And that, folks, is exactly what's happening today. And you can see it actually when you hear like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and these guys uh, completely trash the Constitution. Uh, recently, of course, we had the appointment of the new uh, justice uh, judge appointed by uh, President Trump, uh, Amy Connie Barrett, I believe is her name. Um, she was appointed, uh, actually, I think yesterday uh, they announced it finally that it's going to be her. And uh, she was just, uh, you know, uh, put in there, and uh, now I guess has got to go through whatever process through the Senate this week. Uh, but it's, it's pretty much a sure thing that she's going to get uh, put into the uh, position as the third nominated judge to the Supreme Court by President Trump. Now, the crazy thing about this is the left has lost their, their collective. They're talking about things like impeaching the president, okay, over doing something that is constitutionally legal. It's in his right. But they won't impeach him for that. We're talking about people that are so power hungry. They've gone through all his tax returns now. They're trying to leak that information out there. Uh, on a daily basis, it seems like they want to just throw stuff out there, whether it's checked and not checked, whether it's important or not important, just to try to, like, you know, make him look bad. And this whole thing with uh, the, 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 he, the justice of the Supreme Court is just an incredible uh, 
you know, luck of the draw when you think about it. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died in a time right before the election. I mean, who would have seen this coming, right? I mean, she was only like a thousand and four. So at her age, um, you know, the, the next step is the afterlife. And some somehow, instead of stepping away from her position when she had the chance uh, years ago, she didn't do that. And uh, not because uh, Obama didn't get his appointee in 2015 or whatever. Now they're trying to say, well, you see, they're not playing by the rules. Well, the rules are the Constitution. It's not like what you say the rules are. The rules are set by the Constitution. So what do they want to do? They want to now pack the the House, uh, the courts. They want to add two states, which is funny as hell, but they want to add... Uh, Puerto Rico as a major state, and D.C. as a state, which, you know, as you know, Puerto Rico, they definitely would vote most Democrats. So that's adding Democrat senators, Democrat mayors, more Democrat Congress people. So they're talking about packing the House with nothing but Democrats so they can break and take everything over. Again, this is what that clip is telling you. These are people that are so hungry with power, and they are so corrupted that they're willing to destroy the constitution of this country to overtake the country and do with it whatever they want. Okay, there's no more um, conspiracy in this. This is what they are plotting to do. This is what they've always been plotting to do. And it's scary. They're using exactly what you heard in that clip. They're using things like scare and fear-mongering tactics. Defunding the police. I mean, how silly is defunding the police? How silly is to talk about impeaching a president for doing his constitutional duty? Okay. Now you have, of course, nasty Nancy Pelosi, who uh, has been, you know, just a an Easter egg of goodies the last few months, with her salon gate, and every time she opens her mouth, she makes herself look almost as almost as dumb as Joe Biden, almost, not not quite Joe Biden esque as stupid, but almost. She's she's right on the cusp of being just on the same level of idiot nonsense as Joe Biden but uh, Kevin McCarthy came out and, and said flat out if she tries to quiver her pussy farts and tries to impeach the president we got some quivers of her own and we're going to remove her from Speaker of the House listen to this clip folks listening to the Speaker on television this weekend if she tries to move for an impeachment Based upon the president following the Constitution, I think there'll be a move on the floor to have her no longer or the question of her being speaker. She may think she has a quiver. We do, too. We believe everybody in Congress puts their raises their hand and swears to uphold the Constitution. The president did, too, and that's what he's following through on. And to think for one moment that they would move impeachment because he's following the Constitution, we will take the movement to remove her from... I said just do it and don't even think about it. Just uh, start the process now because she is going to be a problem 
for the next month and a half, uh, for the next 40 days or 40-something days, whatever it is to election time, this woman is going to be a major problem. I mean, she's going to cause nothing but issues on the media. She's going to trash the president. She's going to give code, you know, language to the uh, people doing the rioting. I mean, remember, and the media didn't want to, like, talk about this. They downplayed this. But when they were knocking down the statues, remember that Trump was saying, if you knock down the statues, you're going to do some time. Remember that? She publicly came on and gave a list of statues that she thought should come down. So she's instigating a lot of this stuff. This is a, not a good person. You know, uh, how she got this, the, the job of Speaker of the House is only because of her hatred for Trump. So they put her there knowing that she would just annoy the shit out of him. But it's, it's starting to backfire because guess what? The poll numbers are starting to come in. And Trump is leading in a lot of the polls. Even some uh, of the uh, liberal polls are coming out saying, oh, Oh, yeah, it's starting to look bad for Biden. Remember, at this time, when he was going against Hillary, almost every major poll had him about, what, 10, 11 points down? Now they, they've either been neck and neck, or he's actually starting to go over. And I predicted on an, another show recently that uh, there's going to be, I think, a major flip of a major state, the one Democrat, the last election, that's going to go Trump red in this election. And it's not going to be pretty for the Democrats. I, I do think they're going to lose the House, the uh, Senate, and the presidency. And if they lose all three, which would be just amazing, this would be telling of how the, the country itself has rejected not only the Obama years, but they've rejected the Democratic Party, they've rejected socialism, communism, and they're rejecting Nancy Pelosi and her crazy behavior. And on top of all that, it shows there's still some sanity in this country. You wouldn't know it by watching the mainstream media. You wouldn't know it by seeing the riots and looting in the streets. But I do think, deep down, most of the citizens of this country... The real Americans care for this country enough to not let it burn. Okay, you see the young proud boys, whatever they're called, uh, coming out now. They're starting to like stand up to Antifa and to BLM and all these uh, Marxist groups and uh, and all these crazy uh, people. And uh, you know, bless them for uh, sticking up for the country. We need you know not vigilantes. We need not, you know, uh, people to put their lives on the line if they're not police officers. We need to have mayors and governors allow police officers to do their job. We need them to encourage the law enforcement. And, yeah, there needs to be some, uh, you know, some police reform. I do agree with that. Sometimes there there's some lines that are crossed. But you don't reform the police by defunding the police. That is idiotic. Okay, you just don't do that. You don't make something better by stripping it down financially. That's not how you build. You build by actually making things run smoother. And the way to to do anything like that on an institution as large as the police departments of this country, you need to install 
certain uh, things which are going to show the officers that are coming in how to handle certain situations. You can't just have a social worker show up at somebody's house and, you know, try to uh, deal with a certain situation where they might have to encounter a crazy person with a gun or a knife. You're just sending somebody in to get killed. 80%, 90% of the time, right? So if you want to defund or abolish the police, as some of these people are crazy enough to go on record and saying, what's going to happen when you start seeing uh, crazy people kill some of these doctors and psychiatrists that are being sent in to some of these houses? I mean, you think about that for a second. That's going to happen. But, you know, it, it boggles my mind how idiotic some of these people are. Now, this is a, another funny clip. There's only 40 seconds. Uh, this is a, a scared uh, white girl, as you know, now they're called Karens. Uh, and this one is funny because she's uh, clearly a snowflake. She's on the left, socialist. And she's, uh, you know, crying in the car because uh, she saw a couple of trucks with police flags on them. Uh, and I'm, I'm not talking about these are police trucks. These are just random people that had pro-police flags on them. You know, like the American flag, but with a blue stripe on it, and uh, it's, you know, black, white, and it has a blue police stripe on it. Uh, you know, they had a couple of those and, and a couple of American flags and stuff. And this girl went ballistic. Like, when did it become evil to... Honor the flag. Like, that's a question that I, I still ask myself, and I don't understand how anybody living in this country could have an issue with our flag. I just, I, or with this uh, country in general. When you're especially of privilege, whether you're black, white, Russian, whatever, if you have some sort of privilege and you're in this country, how the hell do you get off hating your own home? Now, we got a hair in my mouth. Got to get that up. But now I understand, you know, the home is not perfect, right? But it sure beats some of these third world countries that some of these uh, folks come from. And if they're here, it must be because here is better than there. So why, they, why would they want to turn here into that shithole they came from? Which the president asked uh, Ivan Omar very epically, and I have a clip about um, that that I'm going to play in a little bit. But first, I want to share with you this scared white girl who saw a truck, and it freaked her out. This is so fun. Right now, over the loss of more lives, and this is what is about to drive past me. Oh, God, I'm like shook right now. Oh, there's another one. Another one coming. There's a parade of them. I'm shaking. What is what is wrong with people? These are human beings. What the hell are the guys driving the truck? What do you think? They're space Martians driving these goddamn trucks? These are human beings, too. Like, I, I mean, the stupidity of some of these people that are out there, uh, it, it boggles the mind how some folks, uh, you know, see a truck with a police flag of somebody who's, you know, a proud supporter of the police department, and they start going into, like, panic mode like that. I mean, are you serious? 
I mean, what are they teaching these kids in school? I mean, I, look, when I was a kid, we had NWA and we had the whole uh, fuck the police and all that stuff. Uh, there was legit issues in California with with cops, uh, which you know that's the Rodney King stuff and the riots and you know these things got handled. California used to be more Republican, now it's more Democrat over the last uh, couple of decades, and. In record numbers, you know, people are leaving California because it's becoming a shithole. Since it's gone really extreme left. Uh, I mean, besides the fires and all that nonsense that's been going on, uh, for the last uh, five years, people are just leaving California, period. I mean, in record numbers, I think, what, last year, a hundred and something thousand people left? And they're moving to like nearby states like Arizona, Texas. Um, let me see, what are the other ones? Uh, Seattle had a lot of them move up there. Portland had a lot of people move out there. Uh, so they, you know, they're they're making their way a little further central, getting away from the craziness in California. You know, taxes are high, rent is through the roof, crime is surging. People are taking dumps in politicians' front yards and and. In front of their uh, doors, that happened to Nancy Pelosi, and I, I want to thank the guy who did that. By the way, good guy. Uh, but I, I mean, California is a, is a mess. It's it's about what maybe a few months away from being a third world country at this point, if not already there. And I lived in Cali, and uh, I want to endorse actually something I'm going to post on my uh, my website, angelespino.com. I'm going to post this uh, probably a little bit later on tonight so you guys can check it out later and then go there and, and click on it. It's a, um, it's a, kind of, it's a petition to have Gavin Newsom recalled from office as governor of California. And Gavin Newsom has been one of the worst governors in the history of the country. Not the worst. There's been worse. But he, he is without a doubt a failure at a full scale. As I mean, as big as California is, that's as big a failure as this man is. I think the and the funny thing is, he said all these positive things about President Trump when COVID first started, and then he backtracked, and now he's trashing Trump. Because now, you know, we're closer to election and he has to kind of like, you know, do what his party tells him. But uh, aside from Trump, because Cuomo in, in New York is doing the same thing. But aside from that, as governors, you're looking at two of the worst governors in the history of the country. Andrew Cuomo, Gary Newsom. Two single-handedly, or single-handedly, two of the worst governors again, this country's ever seen. Ever. And it amazes me that there's still, you know, uh, people out there that actually would say, yeah, we're going to vote for these guys again. I mean, it's like the blind being led by the blind right into the slaughter. Now, one guy who's not blind and opening his eyes is Charles Barkley from the NBA. Actually, I'm really cool to say, check this out. He's talking about defunding the police and how just ridiculous this is. This is a great hot take, and I have a lot of respect for uh, Charles Barkley because 
unlike most athletes, he's pretty rational when he when he talks about politics. He doesn't really get into it a whole lot. But when he does have something to say, usually it's pretty important and, and it's pretty on point. And this is one of those uh, occasions where if you really have an IQ above, like, say, fourth grade, this is like a no-brainer. But for some reason, the people on the left, these socialists, I don't know if they're you know, saying that on purpose, if they know it's just stupid... Uh, but a lot of folks really think that defunding the police is a good idea. Charles Barkley disagrees. And again, this is brilliant, guys. Listen to this. I hear these fools on TV talking about defunding the police and things like that. We need police reform and prison reform and things like that. Because you know who ain't going to defund the cops? White neighborhoods and rich neighborhoods. So that notion they keep saying that I'm like, wait a minute, we just gonna leave who who are black people supposed to call? Ghostbusters? When we have crime in our neighborhoods, we need police reform. But like I say, white people, especially rich white people, they're always gonna have cops. So we need to stop that defund or abolish the cops crap. We need to stop that folks. Abolishing the police, defunding the police, that's not gonna solve any problems. Like he said right there. It's only going to make it worse, you know, especially in the African-American community. The black community is going to be the hit the hardest because even though they're a minority, they represent about 45 to 50% of the crime in this country. And a majority of that, I'm talking about 80% of that crime, is black-on-black crime, okay? Uh, that's a fact. That's not me making shit up. You know, the majority of the crime is by African-Americans, because of the condition they've been put in. Now, when I say the condition they've been put in, it's all because of criminal crime bills that have been passed over the last 40 years. And I, I, I say this over and over again, and for people who you know are so enamored with Joe Biden, that he has been involved in every single crime bill by his own words, since the 70s. So when you're talking about systemic racism, he is one to look at. His crime bills have put people like Alice Johnson in prison. You know, he's helped put uh, more black men in prison than anybody in this country. He has single-handedly written bills, like the one in 1993 that Bill Clinton passed into law in 94 when he took office. That bill alone separated more families in the black community than anything else. Think about that. What's the number one root cause of destruction in the family home when it comes to the black community? The number one destruction is the lack of a parent structure. Mother and father. Hell, father and father, mother and mother, whatever. But the two parent home that can give a proper upbringing to a child, a loving home, that is the major issue in the black community. It's been so for decades. Okay, this is nothing new. We've been going at this since the 80s, 90s, 2000s. It's 2020, and it's still happening, and it's, it's something that really, uh, you look at it and you say, well, if Joe Biden had the answers, why didn't he tell Obama? Why didn't he fix it when he had the chance? He made this issue happen. He was one of the people responsible for it. 
You think he really has now just in some enlightenment at 80 that he's going to fix the situation that he helped cause? And he brings Kamala Harris, who prosecuted thousands of black people? I mean, really? That's who you pick? A person... To, you know, a person who is on record as being one of the worst prosecutors in the history of California. I mean, uh, I, I think it was Trevor Noy who did a skit uh, when the, the primaries for the Democratic Party was going on. And uh, there was a clip when they asked about uh, Kamala Harris. And uh, it was funny because uh, in the skit, the person that was asked about her, and they showed the pictures, uh, they showed her picture, and said, yeah, she's the police. Nobody wants to mess with her. Nobody likes her. She's the most unlikable person that they could have picked. She literally comes from a family of slave owners two generations ago. Her mother's from India. Her dad is from Jamaica of Indian ancestry. Yet she's out claiming that she's African-American. Now, last time I checked, there's no Jamaica or India in the African continent. I'm not a geologist, but I'm pretty sure I'm accurate on that one. Now, check this. This is funny. There's only eight seconds. So, Kamala Harris. She the police. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people who look like me locked up under her watch. There you go. A lot of people that look like him locked up because of her. Now, she institutionally put black people in prison. She withheld information that would have let actually a couple of folks out early okay and uh, you know this is it's scary to know that joe biden who's not even mentally capable of being president is what gonna be really a puppet to her presidency um she's already said that this is the harris biden administration remember she said with my administration and joe biden as president wait a second isn't this supposed to be joe biden in his administration and you're his vice president what why is she talking like she's the president because the fix is in folks as soon as they have a chance he's going to transition to her and she's going to be the president but for the first uh, probably year or so maybe two until his mind is completely warped and gone which is almost there you know he'll uh, play along he'll show up for a couple of speeches and just don't be running things from behind the scenes destroying the world this is what the reality is if they win okay make no mistakes about that and we're facing a tremendous crisis right now on this uh, beautiful land of ours. And uh, I want to play this also. This is from uh, um, Dom Bongino. He had a clip of um, Jim Caviezel. And he was talking to uh, about the American crisis going on. Now, Jim Caviezel, I don't know if you guys are familiar with, with who he is. Great actor. He played Jesus in The Passion of the Christ. And uh, he gave this answer to the to a very uh, good question about what's happening in the world today. And he gave it non-scripted. Okay, this is uh, a person who was uh, really alive on air. Just He was randomly asked uh, this, and he gave possibly a, a really just a perfect answer. 
and one which would make anybody just really question everything. And this is from an actor. You would not expect this kind of answer. This well thought out, considering he wasn't expecting the question. This man is a lot smarter than we give him credit for. Also, he said, now let's set the record straight. There's no argument over the choice between peace and war. But there's only one guaranteed way you can have peace and you can have it in the next second. Surrender. Admittedly, there's a risk in any course we follow other than this. But every lesson in history tells us that the greater risk lies in appeasement. And this is a specter our well-meaning Christian liberal friends, our, our be- priests, bishops, and pastors refuse to face. That their policy of accommodation is appeasement. And it gives us no choice between peace and war, only between fight and surrender. If we continue to accommodate, continue to back and retreat, eventually we will have to face the final demand, the final ultimatum. And what then? When Satan has told the people of this world, he knows what our answer is going to be. He has told them that we're retreating under the pressure of his cold war, and someday when the time is right to deliver his final ultimatum, our surrender will be voluntary because you see by then we will have been so weakened from within, spiritually, morally, economically. He believes this because from our side he's heard voices pleading for peace at any price, or better read than dead, or as one commentator put it, he'd rather live on his knees than die on his feet. And therein lies the road to war. Because those voices don't speak for the rest of us. You and I know it and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Ridge have refused to fire the shot heard around the world? The martyrs of history were not fools and our beloved dead who gave their lives to stop the advance and the Nazis did not die in vain. Where then lies the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all, that you and I have the courage to tell our enemies there is a price we will not pay, there is a point beyond which evil must yeah. not advance. In the words of Jim. Reagan, evil is powerless if the good are unafraid. I want you guys to really think about that. Think about what he just said there. We're not powerless if we're the good guys. The bad guys cannot be allowed to win. But unfortunately, if it's going to be a war, sometimes you have to fight the war. You can't just back away and be submissive and allow the evil to take over. Because you don't want to be looked on as somebody fighting back. Because you want to be looked on as somebody who doesn't want war. Nobody wants war, really, that is sane. The insane want to go to war the insane are the ones that keep us in war the insane are the ones that do what is happening in our streets the insane are the ones that go to the media and try to make somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse a killer while yes two people got shot and got killed Let's not forget the fact that he was firing in self-defense. They were attacking him. They were shooting at him. And sometimes you either lay down and you get killed or you defend your life. And that's exactly what Caviezel's getting at. And that's what Kyle did. And it just so happens, which it's ironic, and a very weird twist of faith or fate, Joseph uh, Rosenbaum, who was one of the uh, guys killed by a bullet, which now they're not sure if it even came from Kyle's gun, by the way. 
but it was one of the the uh, guys killed, which everybody suspected Kyle had shot. The guy in the red shirt that looks like uh, he's an Antifa neo-Nazi type of uh, you know wannabe. Remember, this guy is a convicted pedophile, raped five underage boys. He was in prison. Somebody let him out. They bailed him out. This guy shouldn't even been on the street to begin with. He should have been in jail. Why they let him out? I don't know. The only pre- uh, the only person that knows that answer is the person who actually did the bailing out, because uh, Joseph Rosenbaum is now dead. And Kyle doesn't know why. He has no idea. But Kyle's not being made to look like some militia thug, some crazy criminal, when he really isn't. That kid did nothing to deserve what he got. But yeah, that's what happened. And unfortunately, that is the situation that we're facing. So guys, I hope those clips and uh, everything that uh, you heard made some sense. And now for the second hour on the show, we're going to line things up a little bit. Uh, I'm going to bring in my guest in a few minutes here, Mr. Terry Wickham. Again, a fantastic filmmaker, good friend of the show, and an excellent human being. And hopefully he's staying safe, COVID-free, and just staying away from all the drama and making movies and enjoying life the good old-fashioned way. The American way. Guys, we're going to be right back in a few minutes. Please stick around. As there is more show, I promise you that much. This is Inside the Jackal's Head, right here live on PSN Radio. All right, everybody, welcome back to Inside the Jackal's Head, right here again live on PSN Radio. Uh, Now with me is the man of the hour, the one and only, our good friend and filmmaker extraordinaire himself, Terry Wickham. Thank you so much for being on the show, my friend, and I love having you back on. Uh, you're a gentleman, a scholar, and you always have fantastic t-shirts, and that is a killer shirt in more ways than one. I, I gotta start with that. Awesome t-shirt, bro. Thank you, thank you, Angel. I appreciate it. <laughs> love having you on video. I think this is the, the first time we've done an actual uh, video format slash audio for you know both uh both sides so it's really cool man now you know give us an update what's what's been new in your neck of the woods well next friday october 2nd uh i have the first ever believe it or not the first ever worldwide release of any film i've ever made the movie's called gruesome threesome it's an anthology film that has four movies that i directed all of them and what awesome. happened was, about four years ago, I had a friend of mine, James Belsamo, who was another director, come over to my house. We were kind of exchanging each other's work. He saw some of my old films, and he said, what are you doing those old films? Could people watch those? And I told him, no. I said, two of them were from a movie called Evil Streets, which sold out back in the late 90s, and they've never been available on digital. And then the other movie was called Hair of the Dog, which was a 45-minute movie I made in 2003. So he said to me, you ought to take a, make a new wraparound and put those three movies together with the wraparound and call it a new name because people should be able to watch those. 
So if it wasn't for my friend, I would have never made this movie. So I shot the wraparound about three years ago. Um, I had another feature film I was working on over the last two years called Double Vision. It's actually called Terry R. Wickham's Double Vision, kind of like John Carpenter's Halloween. <laughs> right, and right. It, it was a big Is it like Terry Wickham presents Double Vision? Yeah, it's actually, it actually just says, like, Terry Wickham's, it comes out first, and then Double Vision, and then my name disappears. Just like John cool. Carpenter's The Thing, John Carpenter's Escape from New York. I did that because... I know you're a big fan of The Thing. That's that's one of the like, things we bonded on, because we're both like our, our fans of John Carpenter's work, and The Thing is like phenomenal. So Oh, absolutely. So that, yeah. that's why I did it. I was tipping my cool. hat to the master. That's awesome. And when can we expect the first one to come out, and when is the release on it? So, so Gruesome Threesome is next Friday. Next so Friday, we're talking okay. five days away. It's going to mm-hmm. be on Vimeo.com forward slash on demand forward slash gruesome threesome. How awesome is having these, these streaming platforms now, like for filmmakers, man? It is it's so much, you know, easier to like you really get something really great acknowledged. And, it, you know, you don't have to go through a lot of the process of getting it in a theater format and. Uh, and streaming is the future, especially with the Kung Flu. You know, we're going to be doing a lot of streaming in the, in the near future. So this is, I think, the perfect time for like directors like yourself to take advantage of stuff like that from the indie market. Absolutely. And I think yeah. that, um, you know, I don't know how many people know out there, but when you release a movie through a distributor, mm-hmm. you have to hire an agent to get the distributor. Because the distributors usually won't take unsolicited material. So the agent's not free. So you got to pay the agent, um, which probably costs between, you know, $1,500 to three grand. So if, you're lucky, if you're lucky. If you're lucky. <laughs> yeah. Now you're letting out movie beyond the cost of the movie made. And then when you get to the distributor, they make you close caption it yourself. They make you get E&O insurance, which is about three grand. Yep. So all done, after you've made a movie, you have to lay out another ten grand just to get your movie released. And then what they do is they take the first fifteen twenty grand that sells, and then split after that with whatever split they agree. So you're you're not seeing money till a long ways down the road, and then that's even if you see any money. Yeah. So I decided to bypass that. And my company's releasing Gruesome Threesome for the first time myself. So I'll see all the profits. I can give it out however I feel, whoever worked on the films. And um, I can watch it. I can control it. But, of course, now the responsibility is on me to promote it. So thank you for helping me get the word out. No, man, I, I love, uh, you know, anytime that you have anything, I, I love just uh, helping any way I can. And this is really awesome to like, think about. You, you did a wraparound to your own movies. How, I mean, this is really neat as a concept uh, because it's almost like Tarantino-ish also in a way. Like uh, the way I, I'm assuming, you you know, you put this together. Uh, everything, obviously, is going to be intertwined, correct? So you, it'll be like a smooth transition one to the other. Yeah, um, you know, the, the, the three, the four movies involved, um, the first movie, 
Well, the wraparound. Well, mm -hmm. I'll go by two. So the first movie within the movie is called The Downfall of Johnny Garrett. Right. That was, get this, this is going to shock you. That was made in 1996. Wow. It was originally written by my friend, Michael Knight, who unfortunately passed away about two years ago. Mm -hmm. Before he died, my friend had already suggested doing this, make a feature out of these old films. So I contacted Mike, and I wanted to make sure I got his blessing. He had, unfortunately, had bone cancer. Mm. And so, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, so he said, Terry, you could take the movie. The only thing I ask is, could you cut down the scene with the girl walking so it's shorter? Because mm. that was originally part of Evil Streets. So I said, absolutely. So I cut it down. We made it shorter. So he wrote the first short story that that movie was based on. And together we adapted it back in 1996. Gotcha. The second, the second movie within the movie is called Thunk, and that stars the beautiful, big boob legend Serena Lee. Okay, I'm about to Google she her was, later. <laughs> a worldwide sensation. You know, her saying was, "Marilyn Monroe, but ten times bigger where it counts better." Ah. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Can you dig that? Oh, I could definitely dig that. That's, uh, that's right up my alley, so to speak. Yeah, yeah and, and not, <laughs> only, not only was she incredibly beautiful and sexy and all that, but she was very smart. She was from Jacksonville, Florida. Oh, Philip Floridian. Awesome. Yeah. As, yeah she had, she had um, believe it or not, she had been an actress in high school during all the productions and stuff. And then when she got out, obviously she went into the not adult movie platform, but she was what was known as a featured dancer. So she was going across the country to gentlemen's clubs all over the United States, making a lot of money. And I had contacted her because there was another movie I was developing called Perishing Hearts. And I wanted a girl that was really busty. And I didn't see any actress that had as much as I was looking for. When I saw Serena in a magazine, I decided to reach out to her, see if she might be interested in this other movie it took a long time that was before the internet so i had to yeah. send a snail i had to send a snail mail letter to her did you did you write her a, a dear serena like <laughs> yeah. it, it took her five months to respond that's that's how mail was boys and girls it used to take some time yeah <laughs> now kids have a great they have like instant mail like you write something two seconds later it's there <laughs> <laughs> so, like after five minutes, uh, months waiting, she responds back and she said, "Absolutely interested." And what happened was, um, during that time, like I said, those two other movies were for another feature called Evil Streets, which, by the way, was created by Michael Knight, the guy we just talked about who died. So, and by the way, gruesome threesome because of Mike's involvement and because he did pass away, the movie is dedicated in his honor. So at That's the end awesome. of Gruesome, you will see a picture of Mike, and I wrote some kind words to honor my friend. That's awesome. That's great. That's, right? That's I had to be respectful, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. No, and I'm sure his family also uh, would love to see that. And I'm sure they're going to see the uh, the screening uh, of the of the feature. So I'm sure that they're going to get a kick out of that. 
I already let his wife see it, um, who's you know still survived him, and I'm not sure if she showed it to the kids or not. Some of it might be too rough for kids, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean you don't want to warp their, their young impressionable minds just yet, you know. <laughs> yeah. the story, uh, the third story within the movie, which is Hair of the Dog, mm-hmm. which is the um, out of all four. That's that what I, I, yeah. That was not that long ago when you filmed that one, right? That was uh, a little more recent. It was in twenty two thousand three. Yeah. And that was written by a guy named Tim Clark. I wrote the story with Serena, so okay. I wrote that. Um, I designed it for her. And then Tim Clark, Timothy David Clark, he wrote and produced Hair of the Dog. I directed it, and then my editor and DP on that was Sean McGinn, who was so important to that project. He did so much work, he was insane. But um, but what I, the whole reason I told you the whole story is because the wraparound, I reached back out to Tim. Hmm. And I said, would you have any idea how we could include those three other movies with a new wraparound? And he said, I already have an idea. Can I write it? And he goes, I'll have it quick. So he wrote it one night. Oh, wow. Read it the next morning. It was like six minutes, which, you know, is perfect for a wraparound. Right, yeah. It was funny. It was witty. And somehow Tim connected it so it all works together so nice. that's pretty cool right so that that's and we shot that in 2017 in 4k wow so it's in 2017 so it, this started in 96 to 2003 the filming then 2017 you, wow this is amazing and now in 2020 we're finally going to get to see this this is this is phenomenal this is what dedication and hard work you know pays off thank you and, and i think the cool thing too when you're watching it hopefully You you see a progression that the movies get better because like I'm I'm learning I like anyone I'm getting better at the more I do it so so, um, I'm very proud of those movies especially Hair of the Dog Hair of the Dog to me was one of my feathers of my cap so far Mm -hmm. in my career I had such a good experience on that the music was by David Helpling who's one of my favorite composers Um, we had some great acting by Chris Weir. John Dylan Howard, Doris Daney, Melanie Collins uh, Brown. Um, that was a really good cast. And that that was, you know, the first one's kind of a supernatural film. Mm-hmm. So as a, as a viewer, you're going to get a chance to see, like, that, like, the dark supernatural aspect. Then with Serena, you get the boobs and also, like, a slasher. And then with The Hair of the Dog, you get, like, a murder mystery. So it's a little different. And then the wraparound kind of is a little bit of each. That's awesome. Well, I can't wait to see it. Um, I mean, that that sounds like really original too. I don't. I don't think I've heard too many. Uh, you know, movies that first of all were in that kind of time span when you were directing them, but then to like go ahead and do a wraparound these many years later, have it fit in. This is like it's perfect movie magic, really. When you think about it, when things are like they come together that easily. You said he did it in one night. He wrote the uh, the scene. I'd wrap it around. That's just, it was karma. It was like a destiny to, to be put together like that. That's the thank beauty of, mu- of movie making. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I shouldn't forget to talk about the people that worked on the wraparound that were really good. Um, I cast um, one of the actresses that was in Devil's Five. Remember Devil's Five? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's how I became a, a really mostly aware of your work. I was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I, right. 
Devil's Five won Best Horror Film two years ago at the yeah. House Kitchen in New York City. So one of the actresses from that movie, Shanice Renee, mm-hmm. plays the lead character in the wraparound. And then I cast a, an, an actor named John Logan, who plays her boyfriend. And, and it's a real topical setup. Tim came up with this idea that this couple that are dating can't be together this one night, so they stream watching this anthology called Gruesome Threesome. Nice. So it all, it all connects. <laughs> so those three it, are the ones they watch. You, you could kind of call this the uh, Terry Wickham universe. Kind of like the view ask you. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, Gruesome Threesome was also shot by Adrian Popscu, who was my director of photography on Abandoned, mm-hmm. which was part of And to be honest with you, he's just incredible. Just amazing talent behind the camera. And it just looks amazing. So, And then, and then I had Asim Turkey, who scored the Devil's Five, do the, do the wraparound music. So mm-hmm. it's kind of, you know, we've got all these talented people that work on these movies I've, I've done. That's awesome. I was watching some of the the clips that are on YouTube uh, with yourself, uh, you know, shooting some of the scenes and stuff. And I was like, "Look at him go, man! He's like, he's a professional." <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm really, and, and the fact is, you know, I've been making movies for thirty years. Yeah. And the first movie of my whole career that's a worldwide release, I control it. I own the rights to it. I don't have to answer to anybody. And because of the things we just mentioned about how you have to pay for an agent, how you yeah. have to pay for this, I think filmmakers out there should take it for themselves. Yeah. So they hold in their court. They see the money. They see the returns. And they can do what they want. No, and, and you know, it's funny because, you know, we've been in lockdown this whole year with the whole COVID stuff, and for filmmakers, uh, the, you know, especially that want to do stuff for streaming, um, you know, like yourself, who want to take this uh, this avenue, uh, this is actually a really good time to get uh, a lot of locations that are going to just be abandoned anyway, uh, to be able to film it in a lot of really cool locations, you can just go from something quick and boom and get out of there. Technology's gone to the point it's made it easier for the filmmaker also. Well, yeah, you still have to stage certain things, but if you know what you're doing, you can get quick shots and really make it like like you're in a living universe that might be going through some craziness and spooky stuff. Because everybody's locked down. There's like, I go in the streets, man, and there's like, it's a ghost town at night. There's nobody there. It's a great it's a great point, and, and yeah. in relation to what you're saying, next Sunday... October 4th, I'm directing a music video, which is the first thing I'm doing during COVID. And it's a music video for one of the songs off the original soundtrack for my latest movie, Double Vision, which won Best... Double Vision won Best Thriller back in January. And um, I'm actually directing a music video. And the guy I just mentioned, Adrian Popscu, is going to shoot it for me. So we're doing that next Sunday at abandoned military facility in Queens. How cool there you is that? go. 
Yeah, there you go, there you go. I, I was talking to a couple of buddies of mine who are filmmakers, and I was like, how are you guys not taking advantage of, like, you know, there's so many locations now that you can just go and, and shoot something, and a lot of times you don't even really, like, got to go and get all kind of paperwork. Just go and shoot it. Nobody's there. Nobody cares. Like, this is just amazing right now for, like, filmmakers. And uh, it's it, honestly, I think the ones that are going to suffer in the long run are going to be the big studio companies. I think this is the big downfall for a lot of these major corporations Disney starting to feel the crunch uh, which is funny you think about the Disney corporation they're such a large company right but even I mean they're huge they own everybody but now they're regretting buying Fox because they're like oh man you know everything's starting like you know slow down there's no income movie theaters are closed and uh, they're starting to do all their streaming stuff with you know their uh, attempt with Hulu and Disney Plus and you know they're, they're into all these things but there's so much competition that for the corporations like those a lot of them are going to go belly up Disney might not, they might survive but there's a lot of them that are going to go belly up the ones that are going to really, really I think come out on top are the filmmakers the filmmakers are going to be the ones that are going to completely like succeed because now you're the property owner of your own material you'd have to go through a third party, fourth party fifth party like you said pay all these extreme amount of money which is also going to be you know a blessing for the pocketbook for whoever does fund a lot of these movies you know the the technology is making it cheaper faster better and easier plus now with this you know less of an obstacle in the way it's a blessing for filmmakers i mean you can make amazing movies for a fraction of what they used to cost I think, yeah, and I agree with you, and I think it's so important that the filmmakers start to take control. Yeah. Because when you don't have to answer to another party, I, I think in the end the audience is going to benefit too because I think the biggest problem in Hollywood right now is it seems like movies are made by committees. They must have a bunch of executives yep. that sit down at the table. I can picture like the filmmaker writer at the end of the table saying, well, we think you should do this, you should do that, you should do this. They're making decisions for the filmmaker instead of the other way around. When you go back to the 70s, and you think about what George Romero did, even in the late 60s with Night Living Dead, what Toby Hooper did with Chainsaw, or what John Carpenter did with Halloween, those movies were made by those filmmakers, not by a corporate, you know, conglomerate of, of executives making decisions. That's our biggest problem in Hollywood right now. Yeah. Everything kind of like it's like a think tank and they think that well we'll put this together that's a big mistake because if you notice all the movies are kind of just like eating fast food garbage yeah and it's it's recycled material like you see the same thing over and over again and you know i've been saying this for years a lot of people always say why do movies suck nowadays it's not that they suck it's that you're looking at the wrong material a lot of the best movies are coming in from independent directors uh from low you know those bunch of studios because that's where the real talent is uh there's no a studio that really houses a town like back in the day, like when you had the George Lucas, you know, John Carpenter's, Steven Spielberg's, guys that they trusted to make a movie and said, all right, here's the budget, here's the money, make your film. Or they would make the film and then go to the studio and have the studio back the release of the movie through, you know, the, the funding of the actual releases like Fox uh, with the distributor for Star Wars. 
in Indiana Jones and all these properties, and that's how some directors did it back then. Uh, we're we're going to start seeing more of that, I think, uh, where you know the directors are going to have all this more power now because of the way things are. And now, if you want to play along, it's not like before the studio had all this upper hand. Now they have to you know, almost go more by what the director. Uh, you know, once because yeah, the, the studio structure has destroyed a lot of franchises, and you know, what's the saying? Go woke and go broke. That's one thing that's happening in Hollywood, and and a lot of them are, are feeling it right now. And that's why I think you start to see more of a shift, where you're going to see directors like Zack Snyder and the Snyder Cut, and all these different things that you're know, starting to say. Well, let's give the director more of the leeway instead of trying to like. Put everything into a box that the studio has 300 people mandating every shot, every scene, and 300 heads working on one project. That doesn't turn out well. And it takes away from the creativity of the person that should be the one creating the project, which is the filmmaker, the director. Absolutely. And, you know, with our political society today, everything is so politicized. And I don't think movies need to be. I mean, honestly, I think you need to have some sort of... It's an escapism. That's what it is. That's what movies always been. To escape. Escape reality. We should have fun. We should go to the movies. Whether the fun's to be scared, whether it's to get you excited erotically or to make you laugh or romantically. And it shouldn't be... I don't think everything should be, like, researched by, you know, test scores of audiences and make it... Correct. That's the wrong way to do it. You yeah. got to come up with that has some sort of meaning that's deeper than that, that has more passion and vision than that. And I think that the studios are scared to death mm-hmm. to try something new. They want to go with what they think is going to make money, and it's usually the opposite of what I think they should actually do. They've got to they've got to go for original contact because if you think about it, long term they're killing themselves. Yeah. It's not, they're yeah. not going to last term. You've got to. I look at like okay, think look at TV shows, right? I'm not a big TV guy, but I recently watched the show Cobra Kai. Oh, and it was right, right here. It's so good, amazing. Yes, and those writers took the original characters, brought the same actors back. They had the balls to make them gray characters. They were not black and white. You know, Johnny wasn't just a villain, right? And it wasn't just a good guy. Daniel has some problems, and Johnny's actually uh, not a bad guy. Yeah. And they have balls to change that, and I think it's freaking brilliant. That's what they, and you know what it is? You could tell the writers controlled that show. That's what filmmaking need to do. Mm-hmm. Give it to the directors, let them make the movies. I guarantee we're going to see more interesting stuff. Then, yep. then Halloween again, and a remake of Elm Street. And a remake of Friday Thirteenth, and a remake of Carrie, and a remake of Texas Chainsaw. Give us new stuff. We we're never going to better those original films. Those original films are classic for a reason. Mm-hmm. Let's make films because the truth is, I remember I heard John Carpenter one time. They asked him if he wanted to make Fatal Attraction. They actually asked him before the director ended up doing it, and right. uh, and he goes, "Do you want to direct it?" And he goes, "No." Because I can't make it better than the way Clint Eastwood made Play Misty for me, which was basically Fatal Attraction was the takeoff of that. Right. So he goes, I can't do better than Eastwood did. So he turned it down. Yeah, look at that. 
I think Adrian Lyons still did a great job. Yeah. But you could see Carpenter's reasoning, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, it was it was a hit film, Fatal Attraction, but yeah, I could definitely see the the reasoning behind it. It it, it actually it reminds me of Death Wish with uh, Charles Bronson. That was later remade with uh, Bruce Willis, and I'm like, why would you do that? I mean, I love Bruce Willis. Don't get me wrong; I'm a diehard fan. Up to part three, then after that, they kind of like, you know. But Bruce Willis is not Charles Manson. He's not Charles Bronson. No. Okay. I said Manson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wrong Charles. Uh, but he's not Charles Bronson. Uh, I, I'm a huge Bronson fan. Death Wish, as growing up, uh, you know, look, Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood, like you mentioned, were two of my favorites growing up. Sylvester Stallone, Rocky, Rambo, favorites growing up. Those are classic. You can't remake the classics. And the one thing that I hate about Hollywood is how everything has to be rebooted, remade, restructured, and brought into a diverse uh, agenda-pushing politics. Don't do that. And that's what I love about the independent scene is it's original content, and that's what tells. I had this discussion, Terry, and this is funny, we're, we're in this uh, conversation uh, on another show not too long ago, where I was talking about, you know, uh, the movie um, Black Panther. We lost, you know, the tremendous actor Shad uh, Wicked Bosom uh, who passed away, and uh, you know, I was talking about that movie a year before it came out. People were saying, well, it'll make $300 million, $250 million. and I was like, this is going to hit a billion and everybody's like, oh, you're crazy. There's no way it's going to hit a billion. And I said it. I, I was like, listen, the movie's still about, it was like eight months away, almost a year away, right, at that point. I said, this movie is going to be f phenomenally huge. Whether it's good or bad, it's going to do phenomenal numbers. They were like, why? I'm like, because we've never seen Black Panther before on screen. It's new. And people are, are catering that new. That's why you, they keep failing with Superman. You know, that's why they, they're not making money with these, you know, legacy characters. Because we've seen it over and over again. Yeah, I love Superman, but it's only so many times you can see the origin of the same character over and over again. And Black Panther we've never seen. So that was a perfect segue. How did you like the way the writers are controlling Cobra Kai? Oh, it's awesome. Well, the, the thing I love about Cobra Kai and the writers is they were fans beforehand and they took it upon themselves to write the script for the pilot and come up with the concept and then they approach the actors with it and they're like listen you know we don't have the rights to do this yet uh but this is what we want to do and this is what we have in, in store and it's funny because one of the producers is will smith who was a producer, of course, on the remake, the Karate Kid remake, which, by the way, should be called the Kung Fu Kid, because at no point are they, are they doing karate in that movie. So I don't understand why they even called it the Karate Kid. But anyway, that's just my take on martial arts. What do I know? I just studied it for 10 years. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, he said, even Will Smith was like, yeah, this is a really good idea. And he produced the, the TV show. He helped them produce it. Uh, now, they, of course, they just transitioned from YouTube to Netflix, much bigger audience. It, Terry, this is crazy. The first two seasons, which aired on Netflix, it's already the most watched show ever in streaming. Ever. Yep. I'm not, it broke I'm not every record. It's amazing. I'm not surprised, and I've told everyone that I've that I crossed to see it, because... When I watched it, 
not only were the actors great, especially the original cast, but the writers freaking killed it. You could tell yeah. that show was not made by executives. Mm-hmm. Made by three guys who had a passion and had a story. And what the executives or studio behind that did smartly was let them do their thing. That's what should happen more often. Yes. If they did that, we would be in a better world filmmaking-wise. I agree 100%. And we wouldn't see as many remakes and reboots. We'll see continuations. Because that's what Cobra Kai is. It's a continuation. People are like, oh, they're going to reboot it. No, it's not a reboot. It is a direct continuation. 30 years later, you're right back in the world of Mr. Miyagi, Daniel LaRusso, you know, the Cobra Kai, Johnny Lawrence. You even see the death of one of the Cobra Kai members in the first season. Spoiler alert. Uh, you know, it's it's a beautiful thing as fans to go back and have that nostalgic feeling of when we were kids and we saw the movie in theaters. That's another thing. It, it brings back that memory, that feeling of, you know, being there and watching it for the first time, the first, the sequel, the third. Hell, I even saw the next Karate Kid in theaters. I'm not going to, you know deny it. I, I saw it, you know. Hillary Swank wasn't good, but Mr. Miyagi was in it. And even the way would incorporate Pat Morita into a little bit. Uh, you know, God bless this all he's passed on now, but uh, they were able to kind of incorporate, you know, the essence of who, who Mr. Miyagi is. And now in the new season coming up, they're even going to go to Okinawa. And, you know, they're going to open that up a little bit more. You could tell there's the passion uh, of the, the writers and the filmmakers. They really want to make this just continue to be, to be successful. And that's the same kind of, like, you know, atmosphere that more films need. You know, these are the same kind of people. And they are like you. Because these yeah. are filmmakers that have the passion for filmmaking. These are the yeah. filmmakers that succeed. Not... You know, yeah, some of the, the the big names like the J.J. Abrams of the world make a lot of money. But you can tell their creativity has gone down to they've gone to that fame towards watered-down material. The passion is still there with the people that really care for the material source. Yes. And sometimes they just take jobs to take jobs. I always love filmmakers that do things that are either original to them only or something that is so passionate of theirs they, they, their head you know it's completely focused on making it the best thing possible and, and you know you're one of those filmmakers you make you know passion projects that you're involved in from the very beginning to the very end and it's something that you you know you bleed basically it's yeah. not just a paycheck so and that's definitely gruesome threesome I mean yeah. if you look how many people would have stuck with a movie or a series of movies that from that one of a period of time, they might have just thrown them in the closet, forgot about them. But I literally resurrected yeah. them out of the ground, so to speak, to bring it out to the world. And um, one of the things my friend was saying when he watched those movies was there's an whole audience that's new that hasn't seen that look that was back from the 90s with that a little bit grainy, not quite perfect look because we shot those on SVHS. Oh, imagine those. <laughs> before red cameras, before all this stuff. So we didn't doctor that footage. We didn't change it. It's the way it looks. So my friend said, there's a whole audience that likes that vintage look. And that's legit. I mean, the way you see it is the way it is. And what's cool about gruesome is you get to see that look and then you get to see the look of 4K too. So it's got a mix. And Hair nice. of the Dog was shot on mini-TV. 
So that's even got like a different look than the other two movies. So we've got a real conglomeration of different like kind of history of video look. And I think that's going to give it a real a unique touch. That's awesome. I, I, like I said, I can't wait to like sit down and like eat some popcorn and start watching it. And get, yeah, get and all grossed out. <laughs> anyone that wants to pre-order the movie before next Friday, they will mm. get free two digital alternate posters that have never been seen of Gruesome Threesome. And I got to tell you, they're pretty cool. They look awesome. Nice. But one. I chose the one. So that will be something that they'll get after they buy it. Um, I've had people already buying the movie. And after the second, they will no longer get that choice. So it's kind of like a little bonus. Right. And um, also, anyone who buys the film will get two documentaries free. And they were made at the time those movies were made. So there's a the movie's 91 minutes. And then one documentary about working on the Serena episode. The stock episode. It's called A Walk Down the Streets, Evil Streets of Stock. It's 79 minutes long. Wow. You get to go in Serena's dressing room where she's getting dressed. Nice. You get to see us on the <laughs> You get to see us with the cranes and all the stuff we used in the movie. Uh, I, do an, I did an interview back then talking about how we made it. So that's a free documentary with the same price of the movie. And I also threw in another documentary of the making of Hair of the Dog which is about 24 minutes long. So you can either buy the movie for $13 or you can rent it for 7 If you rent it, you get it for 48 hours. If you pay 13 you get all of them and you own them. Oh, it's worth buying it for sure. I mean, you get all that extra footage and all that extra like, goodies. Have you thought about doing like a full commentary like uh, with uh, some of the, the members of the crew and stuff, like an uh, uh, actual like uh, commentary, commentary or, like scene by scene? Oh, I would love to do that. I haven't done it yet, but it's something I would love to sit down and do. Some of the stories I could tell about those movies would fascinate people. Yeah. Um, one scene in Hair of the Dog, for example, where there's something with the chainsaw, and we were using a real chainsaw, and we had a dummy, and the dummy had a shirt on, and at one point, we had to figure out what the chainsaw was going to actually... You know, we're so low budget, we didn't take the teeth off. So they were really. <laughs> so we talked. We talked a lot about what was going to happen. Is the chainsaw going to go into the dummy? Is it going to go up the shirt? And one of the actors, the lead actor, Chris Weir, said, "I think the chain is going to grab the shirt, and it's going to climb up the shirt." Now the makeup artist that designed the dummy, he didn't make the arms very long. So, as director, you have to be mindful of the cast and crew. Right. So I, I decided to take the arm on this side of the dummy, and the producer, instead of using crew, we didn't want to put someone in harm's way that could get hurt, the producer writer, Tim Clark, took the other side, we talked about it for like a half hour, 45 minutes, and then when we did it and we're filming it, that's exactly what happened. The chainsaw went into the shirt, and it started climbing up the shirt really fast. And at the last second... It went my side. I went like that. And the chainsaw just missed my arm. Oh, wow. I could have got cut by the chainsaw. That's a oh, real wow. story. Wow. So you, you put your life on the line almost. <laughs> I do that for my movies, which is crazy. But yeah. that's one of the reasons why I'd love to do a, a commentary. 
because some of the stories I could tell about making these films are both fine. Yeah, that's why, at least if you don't do a commentary, that's a cool thing about having you on a show like this, so we can kind of discuss certain, you know, like, inside stuff like that. See, I always get a kick out of talking to filmmakers and hearing, like, some of, the, like, the stuff that happens on set when they film certain scenes. Because as an audience, we, we watch them, and sometimes we don't get that we're actually seeing something that almost led to somebody being physically really badly hurt. And they stay within the film a lot of times. They they keep those cuts where nobody gets seriously hurt, you know. Obviously, uh, and they get a good shot. But uh, you know, as fans, we don't we don't like really appreciate sometimes like the filmmakers and what they go through to get some shots. I mean, you, you know, filmmakers go through a lot. The thing is, just yeah, you point the camera and go. That's not always how it goes, especially when you're dealing with, with you know, prosthetics, you're dealing with animatronics, or you're dealing with, you know, like, uh, practical effects, which, you know, can blow up in your face, or a chainsaw that can cut you, you know. I mean, these are dangerous things you guys deal with, deal with, but again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier, it's the passion of the filmmaker. Absolutely, and something yeah. else some audience might be uh, interested in hearing is in Little things like this, like in Hair of the Dog, mm-hmm. there, there's a nurse scene, which I won't say too much to not ruin it for people. <laughs> it's one of everyone's favorite scenes when you see the movie. I can't tell you why. It's kind of a movie within a movie within a movie. Okay. And you've got these three sexy nurses doing this scene. Look at you just, going all Tarantino on this movie within a movie within a movie. <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be an adult movie. And oh, we don't cool. go as far we don't go as far as an adult movie, but we had to make it seem like it was an adult movie. Gotcha. So we do this we do this scene with these nurses. One of the actresses that played one of the nurses um, was an actress named Jedediah Billa. Okay. You could look her up on, on when we get off the phone or even now. She ended up playing assistant nurse N. We call her that for a reason. I don't know if I should say the old name. Because remember, it's adult movie. Right, right, so, right. So, his assistant nurse, then she ended up being later, like 10, 15, 12 years later, one of the co-hosts on the very popular TV show, The View. Ah. Think how big that is. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. Like with Whoopi Goldberg and all those yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Enjoy Behar, Whoopi Goldberg. Yeah, The View. On The View for, like, I think, two years. She, oh, she ended wow. up going huge. She's in Hair of the Dog. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I mean, that's a, I mean, I'm not a big fan of The View, but, I mean, that's a, a really big, you know, show to put uh, somebody who's on that show and in a movie. That's awesome. How I mean, cool just, yeah, no. I mean, especially if she starts promoting it. You know, that's a, uh, yeah. I don't know if she'll promote it because what she's doing now pays big money and all that. She's on TV all the time. She's on yeah. Fox now. But if she could even acknowledge it on Fox, imagine how big that would be. <laughs> when I was casting her, obviously she wasn't as who she is now. But yeah. I remember she was a little bit reluctant to do the movie, probably because of the scene. And... I remember telling her, you know, it's a serious film. It's not an adult movie. I said it's actually taken for humor. And um, I kind of convinced her. Obviously, she died inside herself. I didn't know her before that film. But she ended up doing it. And um, she was really good in the scene. But I do remember she was one of the hardest to convince to do it. Mm. 
because she was kind of more like a social political commentator for like news stations and stuff like that. Right, right, right. Was, But anyway, so you can see how she moved into that area of the world. That's awesome. So you got her right before she blew up on the view. Tells <laughs> you I have good casting instincts, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. You know how to spot the, the star. Exactly. The gold, yeah. That's called the golden eye for uh, for those in the business. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And um, the other thing I was going to say to you is, uh, in um, when we were doing the downfall of Johnny Garrett, uh, there's a scene in the movie where this guy attacks a girl, right? So I had to watch a lot of movies that had rape scenes. Ooh. And I did that because I wanted to see how not to do the scene. I remember my wife saying, aren't you nervous about doing this rape scene and how that's going to be connected with your name? And I said, well, I'm going to do it very tastefully. I still got to give it power so it hits the audience. So I had to watch like all these movies with rape scenes, which was not pleasant. And I don't usually do that. But... Um, I did it because I wanted to see how not to do it, because I didn't want to cross the line. Right. And um, it, was, it was kind of hard to kind of go through and watch that stuff. But I can imagine. I mean, yeah, that's uh, that's not easy material. But if you're a method actor or a method director or a method filmmaker, I mean, you, you sometimes you got to take that plunge, and and it's not fun. I remember uh, reading when Nicolas Cage did Eight Millimeter, uh, which is a snuff, you know, movie, a movie about uh, you know gruesome stuff you know and he had to research this stuff and he's like my god like a lot of this stuff really happens in the world and he talked about that now he, he for a long time he was like a little bit mind warped because of the movie and he's just man imagine he's the actor in the movie oh absolutely and, yeah. and the stuff the, the, the injuries that you could get and it's not for people to feel sorry about me and stuff but you know you take those chances especially on low budget film i try yeah. to be safe and no one's ever been severely hurt on one of my films, thank God. Knock on wood. But <laughs> yeah. When I was doing Johnny Garrett, it just came back to me just now. There was a scene where a girl has a, a little bit of a seance. Um, and she's like trying to contact a dead friend. So she's reading a, a Ouija board. She's using a Ouija board. And she's looking through this book that has these spells. And I remember when we were setting up the scene, I was lighting these candles. And I actually shot that scene myself. I did the camera and I remember at one point there was this like kind of a spike with the candles and I'm putting the candles on and the spike went right into my hand. I had to get Ooh. I had to get a tetanus shot the next day because it went right into my hand. Oh man, see again, putting yourself in the line of fire for your movies, that's amazing. That is dedication, guys. That's uh, that's what a filmmaker does. Uh man, will you back on set like the very next day saying, see? If it's, you know, I, if I could take this, I don't want to hear no complaints the rest of the filming. <laughs> yeah, when you're, when you're a director, you honestly have to be like the Terminator. Yeah. Like nothing, nothing can stop you because the truth yeah. is everything is going to try to stop you. Whether it's the actors getting tired, the weather yep. coming in, changing, running out of money, running out of light, running out of time, actors, crew getting tired. You have to be an unstoppable juggernaut. And, and the worst thing is when the scene just doesn't work off paper. And you're like, oh, my God, it is, it's so good on paper, but this doesn't work. And we have to now rewrite it on, on the fly. That's you've the got, worst. Yeah. You've really got to be aware of what's going on when you're shooting. Yeah. You've got you to have a pulse on the crew, mm -hmm. on the actors, 
you can't control everybody, but you got to kind of keep aware of that because sometimes you might have to cut out shots, make things happen differently to pull off a day, get what you need. That's a talent that you learn, especially over time, to make things happen and make things work. And um, it's something I'm very good at. Yeah, no, you definitely come a long way, brother. I mean, it, look, you've put in the time. Thank you. So, Thank you. And uh, it's it's paying off. I'm I'm happy for you, man. I'm really excited that this is uh, going to be released because I've always, you know, we've talked about your films in the past. And I'm like, man, this is a person who needs to have something major actually, you know, released to a platform that a lot of people get, you know, take advantage of and not just be some, like, you know, underground, independent type of filming. And this is finally coming true. I'm, I'm happy to be alive to see it happen. Thank you, yeah. And, yeah. and just, So just besides the Vimeo release next Friday yeah. on Vimeo.com, on demand, gruesome threesome, uh, Devils 5 mm -hmm. is being released by a distributor. We went that route. It's That's one of the awesome. Reasons, it's one of the reasons why I chose to do my own this way. Because yeah. we did Devils by paying a rep, by doing the distribution deal. That's coming out early next year on Random Media. Mm -hmm. And I think it'll cool. be everywhere. Get it. So I've got two movies coming out. And Double Vision will be next. I don't know how I'm going to do it yet. I'm still looking at all the avenues and trying to figure out what's best for the movie. But... Um, so, Gruesome Threesome next Friday, Devils 5 next spring, and sometime probably shortly after that will be Double Vision. Nice. And what's the website everybody can go in right now again and, uh, and take a, you know, advantage of the early uh, purchasing of the movies, you know, like you know, getting everything, uh, uh, the popcorn ready so they can buy it and uh, enjoy all the extra goodies? Like, what, what, can we, what can we send the audience again? Yeah, so that's Vimeo.com. That's V I M eo.com forward slash on demand forward slash gruesome threesome gruesome threesome uh, one guy that I emailed that it was up because he was a guy who asked me for the movie like five years ago when mm -hmm. um, Serena so he wanted to buy Evil Streets I said it's no longer available but when I come out with this new movie I'll let you know so I sent him the email the other day he sent me an email back and said, purchased it. I've got my popcorn ready to watch it Friday night. <laughs> I'm going to be right there. Uh, here's a question for you because I've always wanted to ask you. And you always seem like somebody that I, I would think would, would be just a knockout with this kind of movie. A dark... Now, I, I know that you like doing... You like the horror genre. We, we know that. So it'll be a, a dark movie, but a dark western how would you like direct? How would you feel about directing something like that? I would like to do something like that. I would be open to it. I've never written a script like that or uh, developed a project like that yet. But I was certainly a fan of Clint Eastwood yeah. back in the westerns. I grew up with that on TV. I didn't see him those in the movie theater. I was too young, but I did see him. High Place Drifter, The Man with No Name. So, obviously, and then the stuff he's, he's done since then, you know, Outlaw of Josie Wales, mm -hmm. uh, the, the movie with Gene Hackman, Unforgiven, back in the early 90s, um, yeah. I would be open to that because I grew up with that as a boy. That, I think, will be a great fit for you. Have you seen his son, Scott Eastwood? Looks just oh, like I, him. I, I have not seen any work from him, but I, I've seen his daughter, I believe. She's an actress, right? Awesome, that I've yeah, seen. yeah. 
and, and by the way, speaking of westerns, not to go off place with, but I also like Tombstone a lot. Yes, that was. Wasn't yeah. the cast that? Mm, that was phenomenal. I'll be a Huckleberry. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Val Kilmer was awesome in that playing the guy with tuberculosis. Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, Val, you know, I, I feel bad for Val Kilmer. He's really uh, had a, a rough decade and a half now. Uh, but, man, he was so good at Stock Holiday. Oh, so he was hot. Kurt Russell, right? He? Yeah. he also played. Yeah, remember that was the year that they both played Doc Holiday, and they both came out. And everybody's like, "Wait a second, which is the better one?" And I'm like, "That's a tough one because I'm a Kurt Russell fan, like big time fan, and uh, Val Kilmer, like you know, he's been spotty at times, but he nailed it also as Doc Holiday. I mean, he was. They were both really, really, really good. That's one of the rare occasions we have two phenomenal actors." tackle a role and you're like my god they're both really good in two different interpretations yeah I'd definitely be open doing a dark western yeah, yeah that would be fun it'd be very cool I think that would be awesome for you man look man the, the best of luck in the future I can't wait to see uh, you know the, the films and, and see what you got next I mean do you have already something in mind coming up next after this or yeah in fact it's something that I'm already in the process I took a little time when I was done with Double Vision back in January. I had to take some time away from movies because I had been working on Devil's Five, Gruesome Threesome, yeah. and Vision for basically three years. So yeah. I took about a month and a half. Everyone kept asking me, what's next? What's next? What's next? And for about a month and a half, I could not answer it. I didn't want to think about movies. So after I did that, I was thinking about what I really wanted to do next. And there were a couple little kind of like projects in the fire. Um there were these two black directors that wanted me to do a black exploitation movie. I liked the idea, but I didn't like it as much as what I'm deciding to do. I wrote a script about 16 years ago called Anomaly. It's a paranormal research supernatural ghost story. Mm. It's the balls out horror film. It's very serious. Little to no humor. And I want to make one of the scariest movies ever made. Top five or ten ever. And the script reads like that. So I guess you could say after I made my decision, it was almost by fate. Like a month later, in March, I decided. And like in April, my director of photography I like to work with, Adrian Popscu, said, what's the next movie we're making? And I said, I want it to be Anomaly. And he goes, I read that like three years ago. What did you think of it? He goes, the first 25 minutes are unbelievable. But after that, he felt it was a little bit complicated, had a lot of characters. So uh, he said, would you be opposed to kind of streamlining it a little bit? So over the summer, I've had my script editor, David Melanson, look at the script he came up with some ingenious ideas. We didn't, like, really turn it over, but mm -hmm. we tweaked it. And he finished it about two weeks ago. In that time we were doing that, unrelated, I got contacted by an actress from Devil's Five, Diana Norris, who's also a... I remember her. Yeah, yeah, I remember her. Also a producer. Yeah. She said to me, do you have any script 
that I could look at potentially as a producer. I have an investor and myself, and we might want to produce your movie. So just today, cool. after she signed a non-disclosure agreement, because the movie, the movie, Angel, not every movie could go all the way. I know that. Yeah. You could make a movie as good as you can. It still may not have the property to go all the way. This Correct. one could go. This one could go all the way. This could be another Evil Dead. It could be a Halloween. Nice. It could be Nightmare on Elm Street. It's got that quality. So she, I sent it to her this morning after she signed the non-disclosure agreement, and uh, she's going to read it. Oh, so cool. What happens? I think me and Adrian are going to figure out shooting a little trailer for it. We're going to pick a, a scene or two, and we're going to probably film that in the next short while. Nice. Any locations uh, you're looking at in particular? Definitely want to film a lot of the exteriors at Sandy Hook, New Jersey, which Sandy is a base that's now a national park. It's mm -hmm. for real. Uh, we build a story around it. Uh, I don't know if we can shoot the whole movie there, but we want to shoot some of the exteriors there for sure. Oh, that sounds awesome, dude. That sounds phenomenal. I can't wait to, like, you know, uh, a year from now, talk about that. <laughs> and I, I got to tell you, it's out of all the movies I've ever made in my entire 30-year filmmaking career, or that I could have made, it's the one that's the nearest to my heart. This yeah. is my baby. This is my baby. This is the one I have to make. Like some movies you might need to make or might want. I have to make this. This is your Halloween. <laughs> yeah, this is my Halloween. Yeah. And I see every scene, every shot, clear as day, with music, edited. I've got the movie right in my head. And yeah, I've, had it in my head I've had it in my head for 16 years. Now, I can tell. I have a, a script that I, I've been writing for the last uh, four or five years. And uh, it's the same way. Like, I have the scene shot already planned out in my head, like, if I was directing. And I'm like, I just want to put it in the script. I don't, I'm not a director yet, but uh, I'm not a filmmaker. But I have, like, the ideas really how it would plan out. So I can imagine a person like yourself has been involved. How you already have, like, the opening sequence. How it segues to one scene to another. With the characters, where they will play with each, you know, play with each other. Like I said, a year from now, hopefully uh, everything is kind of like similar back to normal, and we all get to like eat popcorn together and enjoy the film. Uh, just make uh, make sure that there's a seat available for a chubby bald guy like myself, so we can go and uh, and watch it together in theaters. <laughs> anomaly, what I could tell you about anomaly that I would say is that because I cultivated it over 16 years. It has the advantage that a lot of movies don't that are made quicker than that. So it's yeah. got all the years of thinking about it. I've had a couple of people come aboard, so to speak, that were friends that gave me not most of the ideas, but little tweaks here and there. Uh -huh. And uh, and uh, there's like it, it's it, it it's the type of movie that's not made with cheap scares. It's the kind of movie. So no quick jump scares or anything like that. No, that, no that's awesome. This There's is too much thing. of that. There's too much of that in horror movies, to be honest with you. Way oh too God. much. Yeah. This, this is one that will crawl under your skin, make your hair stand up on end, and chill your spine. That's the kind of movie. And and it's it's a movie that there's like eight scenes you will never ever forget. 
That it's awesome. Terry, we're all out of time. Unfortunately, uh, we have to uh, get going. But my God, man, it's uh, the hours just flown by. I can't wait to have you back on and uh, real soon, so we can touch base again. Let's not be a stranger and wait so long to have you back on the show because you know you're a gentleman and a scholar, and uh, I, I'm dying to see this movie. In fact, as soon as I watch the film the, the, this Friday, I'm gonna contact him. I'm gonna be like, I saw it, and I'm gonna give you my review. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. I'm gonna give you a YouTube video review just for you. Awesome. I totally appreciate that. And again, folks out there. Vimeo.com forward slash on demand gruesome threesome a four slash gruesome threesome support independent filmmaking that's what we need because that's what's going to give you guys great films yep hey you should really look into like doing what I'm doing with Patreon and doing a Patreon page for yourself and that'll help you know streamline a lot of these projects and and help you your your you know your uh, current uh, filmmaking in the future. Uh, it's a good way to go, man. Like I said, there's so many avenues to help filmmakers, and God bless you for sticking by it, man. It's gonna keep paying off. I guarantee you. You're definitely destined for greatness. Thank you so much, Tara. You're you're an awesome gentleman. And again, cannot wait to watch the movie. It's just... I can't. I, I can't wait to see it, and I can't wait to hear what you thought of it. And thank you again for all the support. I truly appreciate it. We'll talk again soon, my friend. Okay. Good night, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, there it is. That's the great Terry Wickham. And uh, we are wrapping up for the evening, sadly enough. And until next week when we're back live on Thursday on Inside the Jackal's Head, I am uh, Angel Espino, the one they call the Jackal, the guy with the big bald round head. Until then, <laughs> take care, everybody. Good night. Good night.